Welcome to Pod Civility. I'm Robert Daniel. I'm Sarthik Sharma. Today in the pod, we're looking at elections around the world. What's happening, what it means, and why it matters. Robert, that's a lot of questions. We should probably get to it. Probably. So let's spin the globe. Okay, I'm going to spin the global election globe. Here we go. There we go. All right, it's spinning. And, and where does it land? have landed on France this week. France. Okay, hot topic in the news these days. I mean, hotter than a Nutella crepe. Which is something we just recently ate, and it was pretty hot. It was really good. So uh, we're talking this week about the French election. They vote on Sunday, and this election has the potential to completely change the shape of the European Union and it's even its existence. How so? Well, Marie Le Pen um, is leading in the polls. Uh, It's not known who will win for sure, but if Marie Le Pen wins, it would certainly signal a shift away from the European Union. So I think before we really discuss Marie Le Pen in detail, I think it's important uh, that you all kind of hear a little bit from her perspective of a couple of the changes that she would make uh, to French society today. Let's get Marie Le Pen in her own words, because she's a pretty fascinating character. She's the product of a political dynasty. Uh, Her father was involved in French politics. And historically, she's been associated with um, far-right policies, the far-right nationalist movement in France. And it's only been recently that she has become a more mainstream, viable election candidate. So let's hear what she has to say. The polls say you can't win. (laughs) Uh, Yes. They also said that Brexit wasn't going to happen, that Donald Trump wasn't going to be elected, wasn't even going to be his party's nominee. Well, they're saying that less and less now. They are much more cautious, much more cautious now. The nationalist policies Marine Le Pen embraces are gaining supporters throughout France and around the world. She's hostile to free trade, rejects open borders, and says globalization, promoted for decades by France's political elites, is destroying her country. So how do you explain what is happening? Did leaders go too far? Yes, yes, of course they've gone too far. Globalization has become an ideology with no constraints. Before we even really jump into talking about who Marine Le Pen is, I think it is important to know a little bit about her uh, her father, uh, Jean-Marie Le Pen. He was the founder of the National Front, which is the party now that is led by uh, Miss Le Pen. And he was an extreme individual. He uh, took no responsibility for France's part in the Holocaust, for instance. And that really polarized a lot of people. And it actually led to his daughter helping to oust him from his own party. And along with that, she did get rid of a lot of the ultra, ultra uh, fringe group members in the party. But that doesn't mean that the party doesn't still have very extreme views. What do you think, Sarthik, about her point that uh, globalization has gone too far? Well, it really depends on what your base view is of globalization. If you see it as being bad or good... Uh, Because I think if you have someone saying that it's good, then globalization is only going to make the world flatter in in Thomas Friedman's view. Uh, Or if you take the other opposing view that it's bad, then you see some of the the supporters that maybe voted for Trump that feel that a more nationalist agenda is one that's more important. It seems like Marine Le Pen 
follows that European Trump idea. And unfortunately, I think what the idea we're talking about is more complicated than simply um, good or bad because it's good for some and bad for others and good in some ways and bad in other ways. And certainly globalization has brought um, certain elements to the French economy that the French economy lacked before. Um, but obviously the success of Marie Le Pen has captured um, the same nationalistic feelings that we saw in Great Britain with the Brexit, that we saw with Trump's election, and that we've even seen in Turkey uh, just earlier this week in their referendum. Um, these nationalistic tendencies uh, might be, and some would argue, a product of globalization going too far. The- well, well, one of the big things with France is that in a way it's very different from uh, the ideas going on in Brexit and uh, Trump's America because you have a very different country. I think a lot of people see France as being another Western uh, first world country, but for so long, France was a country where to be a citizen, you just had to be French. You just had to adapt and assimilate to the French uh, way of life. And part of that at the time, at least a few years ago, up to a few years ago, included uh, being okay with someone that's wearing a, a hijab or someone that's that has a yarmulke, as long as you're part of that French ideal. Uh, but in recent years, as globalization has increased, you've seen an influx of refugees, an influx of more immigrants coming into the country, and that has created a division that I think Marine Le Pen's party is now taking advantage of. I agree completely. In fact, in that interview with Marie Le Pen, she goes on to say that she... Um, believes in a France where um, Muslim individuals could not wear a burqa or hijab in public, a Jewish individual could not wear a yarmulke, a Sikh um, could not wear a turban. Um, And that in itself is really expressing um, her belief that there should be this strict adherence to this French cultural identity. Um, And this is different than the United States where we've traditionally had um, we've been a melting pot. France has a pretty, um, pretty specific French identity. In fact, they still have a minister of culture, um, which decides what is and what is not French. And I think Marie Le Pen is taking that and um, kind of building off of that and uh, funneling this nationalistic anti-immigrant um, sentiment going into the campaign election on Sunday. And that could have some very real consequences for not just the rest of France, but all of Europe and and possibly the world. If France is out of the European Union, which is something Marine Le Pen has uh, said is a desire of hers, then that is one of the great structures holding up the European Union that would collapse. Uh, very much causing the EU to possibly be no more. I I don't think it's too dramatic to say that if France falls, the EU is done. I don't see how it can exist without France being part of that economy. And it's going to be crucial to Marie Le Pen's success if she is elected to to use the... um, exit from the European Union as a way to bolster that French nationalism that she's already been talking about. And and her chief uh, combatant right now for the seat is uh, a man by the name of Emmanuel Macron, uh, who currently has views that are, are more in line with the traditional French ideas of more inclusion, uh, even in this increasingly globalized world. So that's where you're seeing a lot of the differences that are splitting uh, the French society up right now, which is you have your nationalist viewpoints, and then you have these more uh, globalist individuals. And that, I think, goes back to 
to Robert, what you were saying earlier, asking is globalization good or bad and kind of where uh, people fall underneath that umbrella. I mean, I think even um, Macron is uh, making these arguments that would that would remind um, people of Bernie Sanders, where he's talking about um, his disdain for big banks and Wall Street, which isn't too far separated from some of the things Marie Le Pen has said. But certainly, Macron is a pro-European uh, Union candidate, and you're seeing this divide that I think we'll continue to see, and we're going to see it in the new um, British elections that Theresa May just announced today um, that she'll be holding, that you'll begin to see pro-European candidates versus these pro-nationalistic pro-exiting uh, the European Union, pro-exiting global institutions, pro-strong uh, borders candidates against each other. And eventually that's just going to become, and we've already seen this in America with the election of Donald Trump, a cities versus rural area um, paradigm where New York, Atlanta, Chicago, all of the major metropolises in America will vote for these more globalist candidates, but yet there will be this tension between well, because, the rural well, because areas. Because these larger cities tend to have the larger immigrant populations. I mean, someone, you know, a Syrian refugee is usually not coming to France and then settling in the countryside. Their usual first point... Uh, of contact is going to be a larger city. Exactly, exactly. And I think one of the things that will consistently plague countries is the is is wrestling with that tension between the more rural voter who very much identifies with these nationalistic ideas that Marie Le Pen is espousing, um, and then the more city oriented individual that wants to be pro globalization, pro European Union. Right, and I think talking about. Uh, this idea of wrestling kind of brings us to another country uh, that's recently been wrestling with its form of government, uh, which is Turkey. You've seen the same exact type of paradigm in Turkey, where in the referendum where um, Erdogan just won uh, a referendum on the constitution to consolidate his presidential power, um, you saw the same tension where citizens in Ankara and Istanbul were voting against this referendum, voting against the sitting president and his authoritarian attempt to consolidate power, um, whereas more rural members were voting with him. And this election is just as important, uh, and this form of government that has changed is just as important as what's going on in France uh, for a couple of reasons. Now, a lot of people may not be familiar necessarily with specific forms of government as much as what a government may be doing or how it might operate. But uh, for a very long time, since Ataturk uh, started kind of the secular idea of Turkey, Turkey has been a parliamentary system. So very similar to how Great Britain has uh, a parliament where, the, where people elect the members of parliament and the parliament selects uh, a prime minister. Turkey had a very similar system to that. What that meant was that in general, you had to see more coalitions. A lot, a lot of parties, and each party kind of had to lead, had to reach out to other parties and form these kinds of coalitions if they wanted to win power. That's opposed to the kind of system that the U.S. has, which is if you get fifty percent plus one of the vote, you've essentially won the whole the whole shebang. Well, what a lot of political scientists call the first past the post system, and Turkey has switched from the parliamentary form to the presidency, well, the system that we have, but more so. They have become an executive president-led government, giving a lot more power to Erdogan, 
in a referendum that neutral observers from outside of Turkey have questioned in its legitimacy. And certainly they're questioning it on multiple grounds. First, um, Erdogan has control of the media. And so the ability for the opposition to get their message out was um, suppressed by his ability to do that. And second, he has consolidated power after the attempted coup um, in Turkey. He's arrested not just military leaders, but he's arrested teachers and judges. And he's done this in the thousands he has systematically um, taken more power incrementally each day, and this referendum was just the mountaintop moment for Erdogan. What's really important with this, Robert, I think is context. If you just look at Turkey in a vacuum and you say, well, there is a country in the Middle East with a person that is trying to strong arm his way into power or into staying in power, in a vacuum, that's just something that happens. But... In the context of where current Middle Eastern uh, politics is at, we can't have Turkey fall prey to what has happened in countries like Syria and, and Egypt, where you have a, a person that is now starting to create a more authoritarian system of government. Absolutely. Turkey is, is globally important because of its location. In world history, it's always been important because it sits between Asia and Europe. And prior to this referendum, um, you had seen a, a country that was more, um, more westernized as far as Islamic countries in the European um, Asian sphere are. And that um, allowed the United States the benefit of placing um, nuclear missiles in Turkey and having a base in Turkey. And additionally, it gave us confidence that the ruler of Turkey would allow our ships to pass through the Straits of Bosphorus, which is a key um, naval pathway. And as their government becomes more authoritarian, it becomes harder uh, for the U.S. to kind of keep Turkey as such a strong ally because criticisms mount. How exactly. can the United States support this kind of government? Which brings us to this week, Donald Trump's response to this referendum in Turkey. Donald Trump, um, in fact, called Erdogan and congratulated him, and he caught a lot of flack for doing that, obviously, because this was a move um, by the president of Turkey to completely consolidate power in an authoritarian way. Which is not a strong move to make. It's not. It's not. But again, as we've outlined, it's difficult for the president um, to criticize the sitting member of Turkey because of the strategic interest the country, our country has in Turkey. But still, you would like to see some leadership with regards to um, free and fair elections and elections that um, do not consolidate power with one specific person. So, I guess where you know the question arises, where our uh, strategic interests lie, and really what the future of our relationship with Turkey ends up being. I think we'll see the future of our relationship with Turkey mirror. Um, what our what our relationship with Egypt has looked like when they've had authoritarian rulers, where we've criticized them at times, but yet we've kept them um, as an ally in the region for the most part to try and maintain some balance and some influence over them. Doesn't that seem like a really dangerous trend, though? Because it seems like America would just be legitimizing any uh, individual that comes into power in a Middle Eastern country and then goes on to... Uh, try to make authoritarian moves, knowing that in the end, the geopolitical position that they're in 
is so strong that America is just going to kind of sit back and allow it to happen. I mean, it's certainly a dangerous trend. It's certainly something that we've seen. Um, but it's a classic example of where there's not really any good options as far as what we can do. We can balance pressure and um, use carrots and sticks to try and maneuver the situation. I think that's exactly what we'll do. Or we could just launch some missiles at a base that doesn't really do that much damage. We could absolutely send a couple cruise missiles to a runway or two in Turkey. Send a message. But keep the runway alive. Keep the runway working. Sure. I mean, I you mean, don't want the planes to not be able to take off. Honestly, that... Sorry, that's a great transition point from something that was interesting this week. Um, it was announced earlier this week in our uh, run-up um, in uh, intense relations with North Korea that we had a aircraft carrier group steaming towards the, the North Carl Korea. Vinson, you know, the USS Carl, led by the USS Carl Vinson. This was something said by Donald Trump in a classic blustery, um, machoistic, bravado type of way. We have an aircraft carrier group steaming towards the continent. You better piss, listen and pay attention to me. Which really begs the question of what are we doing? What, what well, is the point of it, everything that we're it, doing? The, the major point here is that it wasn't true. The aircraft carrier group was not headed towards the peninsula. That's a minor point. It's a minor point, but it's also a major point in the sense that it makes your statement completely wrong. Which is fair. Which is fair. <laughs> but in in his defense, maybe the words here that are important are do as I say, not as I do. That could be it. That could be it. But I think this um, just continues in a trend, and we've seen this in other places as well, not just in America, where... The truth has been blurred a bit. Um, what matters is not really the truth, but really how you look, the message you send. In fact, that was one of the key rationales given for the, the cruise missile strike in Syria. It sent a message. Isn't that usually North Korea's rationale, though? Exactly. It's this weird flip where the United States is not really leading in foreign policy, but just communicating through these um, you know, macho but even uh, types the of lines. Even the words don't seem to really make sense. So this administration... Uh, Donald Trump specifically ran on an America First policy. He ran on a policy where we are not the policemen of the world. It's about building our infrastructure, which in Atlanta, by chance, we could really use some. We really could. Right? And it's about increasing the uh, the healthcare in the states. It's about helping education, jobs, coal jobs, very very specifically. So where is all of this? Why has foreign policy all of a sudden come to the forefront of this administration? Well, I think a couple things, and this is obviously all personal opinion, but I think, one, generally presidents, when they make um, executive decisions with regards to foreign policy in the military, they look presidential by default. Um, it is a very presidential task to choose to launch cruise missiles. And so you normally see a bump in your polling ratings. And while Donald Trump's polling ratings are um, below the basement level as far as presidential But they have been go, going up. They have been going up. And I think some of that is in response to um, his choice to launch missiles into Syria. And so the worry is that while Donald Trump um, may have said America first in the campaign... I think what really everyone should have heard was Tom Donald Trump first. first. This is about him looking good. This is about him um, getting approval. Well, I think people would say that it's not j maybe sure Donald Trump. It is a little bit about Donald Trump looking good. 
but it's also about helping uh, the kids that were attacked in Syria. Absolutely. And obviously, I don't want to question the rationale that he provided that, he, that those pictures motivated him. But but I also want to see want want to point out that there is a bump in his approval rating, that this also is probably a motivating factor. So this might go against the grain, but I am going to question those motives a little bit. Right, because I think if you look at it from the wide angle lens, please there has let's, been. Let's pick out right? the wide angle if lens you, here. Uh, I know nothing about photography, so I don't really even know if that's why. I, I think we need a wide angle for this one. Great. So if you look at the children that were that were killed, the adults, or anyone, all the the Syrians that were harmed by the chemical attacks, that is incredibly sad, and I hoped that anything like that would not happen. But it's not as if that's the first time that's happened. Those aren't the first Syrians to die, um, and nor will they be the last Syrians to die, unfortunately. But there has been, since Donald Trump announced his run, up until now, there have been no great geopolitical shifts in the world. Right, Syria has not now started a civil war. Russia has not now become involved. So what could possibly have changed from when Trump, the candidate, was putting America first to where we are now, where it's making sure Syria is dealt with, North Korea is dealt with, things that President Obama tried to do but failed in many aspects. I mean, I think there's just always a transition between candidate Trump and President Trump, but the one thing I do think that has stayed the same is his inherent self-interest and... Well, this um, seems like a pretty strong transition, though. I would agree. Right, and An example of, of that strong transition, I think, is with his Mar-a-Lago visit with Xi Jinping of, yeah, of China. Absolutely. Um, so, one, he talked about chocolate cake as much as he talked about Tomahawk cruise missiles. And I'll be honest, though, Donald Trump's description of Mar-a-Lago chocolate cake moved me in ways that I didn't think possible. The man is passionate about chocolate cake, and I can respect that. Context is important there. I think there are a lot of instances where you should be passionate about chocolate cake. About to tell the Chinese premier that you've launched cruise missiles into a country, not the best preface to talk about the chocolate cake. Not the best. Um, But I think the more important point with the chocolate cake is that Donald Trump talked in that same conversation with Mr. Jinping about the Chinese relationship with North Korea. And he had a very specific mindset uh, that China needs to be doing more with North Korea. And then said in an interview that after about 10 minutes of Xi Jinping talking about China's historic relations with North Korea, that Donald Trump then understood that this wasn't that simple. And I think that that... uh... When I heard that, I was a little disheartened, but also um, buoyed by the fact that he had at least acknowledged that this was complicated. Honestly, after Mar-a-Lago, I was worried that he was going to steam the aircraft carrier over the peninsula, launch off some cruise Tomahawk missiles, and we would have ourselves a nuclear war. But then I discovered that it was not going to happen because Coldplay was playing two shows in Seoul that weekend, and you can't nuke... You South Korea with Coldplay in it. Well, I think Coldplay would just play themselves just out. In, yeah, just, just, that's how they'd go out. It would be laser <laughs> lights and then a nuclear missile, them riding off into the clouds playing Viva La Vida. Is there a better way to go out? I'm sure there's a better way. Uh, to go not out. for Coldplay. Not for it Coldplay. Was, it was two sold out shows in Seoul for those keeping score at home. So, so talking about being at home, uh, we have had yet another election 
uh, here in the States, just when you thought election season was over. And you really hoped it was you over. You really, we all truly We all hoped. truly hoped it was over. But it's not over. It's not. It's very much not over. Robert, why is it not over? It's not over because we have these special elections. There was one in Kansas earlier this week, and then tonight um, we have a special election in the 6th District in Georgia, where John Ossoff is hoping that he can convince every individual in the district to vote there, Ossoff. That's that's good. Yeah, I'm sorry. I had to. It's only the twentieth time I think I've, I've seen that. You know, it's an overused pun, but I should still get some credit. Uh, I actually saw a tweet about Joss Whedon. Someone hoping that uh, Joss Whedon made a very wild prediction for the election, so that they could tweet out that Joss uh, off on John Ossoff. That's a that's a lot. Of I think Ossoff's. that's a solid uh, tongue twister there. But there are a lot of really serious issues going on here, too. Uh, The biggest of which, at least one that's been hyped up a lot by the news media, is that this election could serve as an early referendum on the first hundred or so days of the Trump administration. Do you think that there's a lot of stock to put into that? I think there's some. I think that special elections are inherently, um, as their name calls them, special. They're hard to take large um, points from. I think John Ossoff has done a good job mobilizing his voters um, in the 6th District. I think it's going to be pretty incredible that a 30-year-old could potentially um, win a district that is very much a Republican district. I think on an average election, a Republican wins this by over 10 percentage points. Um, this, this, uh, This election should be a Republican election. But the trends over the last decade or so have shown that there is a shift going on towards the Democrats. I mean, it still has really all been very conservative, Republican, strong, uh, strong district. But Mitt Romney won this district by over double digits, uh, I think some 30, 30 percentage points. And Trump was, I think, around 10 or so percentage points. Uh, his victory was... Uh, so you, we have seen a bit of a shift, and now we're seeing it shift even more. Uh, but that's not to say that this is a done deal, right? The election, it, isn't, it doesn't necessarily end tonight. This is a two-parter. Correct, yeah. This is a Could jungle be. primary. That's what they've... A jungle primary. A jungle heard. primary. Is John Ossoff, is he the wildcat? John Ossoff is the wildcat okay. in the jungle primary, okay. going up against uh, an evil den of hyenas. Dan Moody, Karen Handel, and Bob Gray. Uh, I've heard Karen Handel, who I'm sure is an amazing, great person, describe a lot of words. Hyena has not been one of them. If any Handel supporter does listen to this... Hyenas are just really great animals. We (laughs) over here at the pod are fans of them. That was not a derogatory comment towards Karen. Although Karen Handel has run for about every position in the state of Georgia, including Hyena Catcher. How many did she win? Um, Sorry, the glass check, she had never won. That's okay. There's a first time for for everything. Uh, So... With this election, so being a jungle election, you, we have uh, we there needs to be a candidate that wins over the fifty percent mark uh, for that candidate to win outright. Right? That's that first past the post system that we were talking about earlier. Uh, but a lot of the early polling has shown that no candidate really has the majority of votes. But John Ossoff has been leading in a lot of them, maybe partly. Uh, because of the huge fundraising dollars that he's 
raised. He has raised over eight million dollars, which puts him in the top ten percent of current House House um, Re- House of Representative members as to what they've raised. Um, that's an astronomical amount of money for an election. That's an astronomical amount of money for a special election. John Ossoff has really done an extraordinary job raising money, and a lot of that has come um, from out of state. He's been able to leverage the um, the unpopularity of the current president, Donald Trump, to his advantage to get contributions to pour in from out of state. This has given him an even larger advantage on TV, where he's been able to get his uh, message out in much larger quantities than the other um, Republican candidates. And he, since the beginning of uh, his run, has really... Uh, been tr- uh, hitting the the larger numbers of the estimates for his voting. Uh, so there's uh, some internal polling with 538, uh, and they showed that he was, I think the most that he was polling at was between 42 to 47, 48%. But a lot of those local localized polls had a uh, margin of errors of a, a, a plus or minus eight and a half points. So it's a very good opportunity that he could get over that 50 required but it has not um, it has not been shown that any of the Republicans there have enough uh, enough support to get that 50 plus margin in the first night of voting. And if John Ossoff is able to pull this off, there, there will be lots of headlines that um, that read a large narrative into this. And it's possible that those could be right, but it's also possible that this, um, was a special election that captured um, the unpopularity of the current president and really mobilized a ground game in a district that was already turning um, towards the Democrats. Well, and let me let me bookend that with a word that I've used about four times already today, which is context. Context. Right? The special election, maybe in a vacuum, is just that. It's a special election. But in context, the one we just had prior was uh, in Kansas. And in, in Kansas... The Democratic contender, whose name just escapes me, did lose. That's what happens when you lose. Fair enough. Your name fades Fair away. enough. But it was more the margin of victory for the Republican than anything else. That district had been Republican, strongly Republican, by double-digit numbers for decades. And yet, this Democratic challenger in this recent Trump era was able to really cut that uh, numbered down to an amount that really scared a lot of, of Republican poll watchers. And in a district he had no business performing that well in, that district is even more conservative than the um, Georgia Congressional District that has the current special election. Um, but Sarthik, what do you think this all means? Obviously, we've, we've talked about these elections. We've, we've seen Brexit. We've seen Trump's election. We've now talked about Marie Le Pen's rise in France and the, and the powerful national um, right government party that she's running on. We've talked about Erdogan's consolidation of power in Turkey. What do all these elections mean? It means the world is flat, and that's kind of scary. I think it means that um, globalization has done a lot for some countries. You've seen Obviously, China able to consistently grow their GDP and not being outmatched by India or or other countries um, that are rising. But it means that globalization has done things to the ability for a country to maintain a national identity, the ability of a country to maintain a strong middle class that's based on um, factories and productions. But also, you know, I want to preface, or not preface, but I want to say that 
there's also another role, and we'll talk about this more in another episode, but automation is playing a huge role in this. It's not just globalization. It's technology increasing in a way that is moving economies past previous economic paradigms, and these nationalist parties and their desire to um, build tall border walls, develop strong nationalist identities, and um, promote a culture that kind of hastens back to a previous day where their economy could flourish um, with factories and with global production. And I think what you're hitting on is really the balance. Right? Every country has to, or the people of every country, have to figure out how to balance the pros and cons of globalization. The pros being some of what you talked about, where you have automation that could lead to lower prices for products, greater, greater availability of products, uh, that could help more people uh, to connect with people around the world, whether it's family that they've left or friends that they've made. But then there's also the cons of it, which means that greater automation can lead to more job loss, uh, which can also lead to more unsavory groups having easier access into your country, uh, unsavory groups like ISIS. So where we fall on that balance is I think what we're seeing play out over these past few elections where you've seen Britain decide that Brexit is best for them or uh, the French Nationalist parties gaining power or the U.S. with, with uh, Donald Trump. And what we've seen over the past couple of decades is that it's very difficult to stop globalization because it's a natural aspect of where civilization is going uh, technologically and culturally. You can't slow technological innovation. Um, and you can't stop those forces from changing your economy. And I think you're seeing the United States with these special elections and the amount of um, strong mobilization that you've seen with the Democratic candidates in Kansas and now in Georgia, regardless of the outcomes in the election, that strong mobilization is in response um, to people challenging the global paradigm and challenging globalization's ability to um, exist in society. There are certainly um, strong contingencies on both sides, and how countries deal with those um, different paradigms moving forward will be will decide the fate of those countries. Well, I can't answer the question about the fate of this country, but I can tell you about the fate of this episode of Potsibility, which is that we have come to an end. Yeah, that's it. We've, we've probably talked too much. so We uh, definitely talked too much. We'll uh, see you guys next week. Yeah!